to Radio Cachimbona. I'm Yvette, and this is episode one. Radio Cachimbona is a podcast hosted by one Salvatorian, that's a Salvadoran Taurus, growing, healing, and storytelling in Southern Arizona. I'm here to storytell the fierce, ongoing resistance occurring in these borderlands while centering Central American voices. Enjoy. Today, I'm super honored to have two of my really great friends, Carmine and Eva, on the podcast to talk about what it means to be Latina in this current political moment. Specifically, we'll be talking about our Central American roots and, in Eva's case, her Mixtec roots. Carmen and I, well, I'm a law graduate, and Carmine's a lawyer, and Eva is a legal assistant, and we're doing detained deportation defense in Southern Arizona. We wanted to talk about what it means to identify as Latina women in this political moment and what it means to be doing immigration work as Latina women in this political moment. But first, I want you all to introduce yourselves. So Carmine, if you want to say a little bit about yourself and why you came to the podcast today. Hi, everyone. My name is Carmine. I am a Latina lawyer. My parents are immigrants. My mom crossed the border two times illegally from Guatemala, and my dad is from Argentina. I grew up in LA, and um, now I am Yvette's coworker. Why I'm on the podcast, well, uh, to see, support my friend's project. Um, she does amazing work, um, and I'll gladly help her out in any way I can. Um, but apart from just being Yvette's friend, um, I just feel that if someone can give me the platform to advocate for the work I do and the people I help, I'm going to take it. And um, thank you all for tuning in and listening about our cause um, and being allies in your own way. Mm-hmm. Okay, hello everyone. I am Eva. I'm a young woman with a young Latina woman with indigenous roots. My parents are from Oaxaca, Mexico. Um, we are Mixtec peoples, and my parents also really crossed into the Me- into the U.S. from Mexico um, quite a few times. <laughs> I can't count how many. My, my dad came when he was <laughs> about um, 15 years old to begin working, and my my mom came when she was about like 17 as well with her whole family. My parents grew. My parents began here as field workers. They worked in the fields, following the crops from. From like the West Coast to like Florida and just 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 going wherever the work was at, and um, I actually they ended up um, staying in Arizona after they had my little sister and and so I ended up growing up in Arizona and I've been living here almost my whole life. We're kind of getting into this already, but how has your identity as a Latina woman influenced your desire to go into the legal profession? And I guess you can say if you don't want to go into legal profession you can also say that right now too (laughs) but you do I think I believe I do um I think it's a little more difficult for us just because I think for me it's just a lack of representation I would say so with with that language like that language barrier I believe that I would be able to be more of a better like advocate I also want to I understand that with being Latina and having these indigenous roots I know that I could be able to relate more to the people and my community that I want to focus on with law school would be within immigration and I think with the political climate it's just it has like kind of like worn on down on me a little bit but but I think it's still a path that I'm willing to take 
I think it's really inspiring because I, I also have seen you do an intake with somebody who was Mixtec and you did it in Mixteco and you were actually speaking in different dialects so I know it was kind of a challenging intake but I was just so honored to see you do that because I mean let's be frank within the immigration legal profession there's not even enough people who speak Spanish <laughs> like yeah. we're, not, we're not even getting into like indigenous languages you know and so and I've been in situations where like I had to do more work because lawyers who I was working with didn't speak Spanish um, let alone indigenous languages and I know that people feel more alienated in detention centers because of that so I really applaud you and I hope you do enter legal profession even though I talk shit about it all the time yeah. <laughs> I hope you like you just go into with open eyes that's all I want <laughs> Carmen what about you um, well actually I also wanted to comment on the need for indigenous attorneys because mm -hmm. um, I work with unaccompanied minors and a lot of them are from Guatemala and a lot of them speak Quiche, Mam, Canjobal. I'm not gonna go on because I don't want to butcher the names but you know I'm not an indigenous Guatemalan woman and I have no family history of like anyone who speaks an indigenous language and it's really unfortunate because sometimes our hearings in court get stalled because we're trying yeah. to find an indigenous interpreter um, to make it to the hearing and there's so few of them also, we pay a lot of money for interpreters over the phone when we meet with clients in detention. Sometimes we can't even talk to them because there's no interpreter available when we need. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't tell us that someone needs an interpreter, so we can't make an appointment. And we find out when we meet them for the first time and we have a language barrier. So even in court sometimes, you know, we have this struggle like, what is how much Spanish does someone need to quote-unquote get by in court and should right. that be the standard should they just be getting by in court barely so you know the court will make a note of like on the record like what is the language that this person speaks and I think that goes to like due process and like oh, just yeah. fairness and mm -hmm. understanding so sometimes I feel like it's unfortunate if a judge hears if, or if a judge asks, like, oh, do you speak Spanish? And someone might be even just ashamed to say, like, oh, I'm indigenous and I don't speak Spanish because there's a stigma mm -hmm. in Guatemala even about, you know, speaking indigenous languages. So um, this is like a constant battle and conversation that we're always having. And yeah, Eva, so I would say I would encourage you to go for it <laughs> because you can make such a big difference um, just with, you know, all the things you talked about of your background and skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much, Carmen. <laughs> um, so I think for me, my identity as a Latina woman did influence my desire to go into legal profession because I was really aware of how few Latina lawyers there are. I think at this point we're 2% of the legal profession. And I felt it in law school being one of only two Latinas in my small section. And actually the other Latina was a very quiet woman who like would never speak up. And that's fine. I, I hate that we have this burden on ourselves. And I hate that I... I don't hate, but sometimes I'm a little hard on myself because I buy into it and I felt, because I felt a lot of my 1L year, like I needed to prove that I belonged there at Stanford and I needed to prove that like, I wasn't just an affirmative action baby, that like, yeah. you know, I was really smart enough to be there. And it was hard, especially with when I felt like the one other Latina woman was like, was fulfilling the stereotypes that I felt like my white classmates had in their heads. And it was, that's not fair to her and it wasn't fair to me either. Um, and so that motivates me, but it also, it weighs on me heavy because work is so much easier when you have 
like older mentors you know like be the managing attorney for the Tucson kids team is someone who I admire so much because she empowers me as a Latina woman she like makes me feel better about being a Latina in the profession but it's and it's great to have those folks but I definitely did not have that experience in every single work internship that I've had in the past I've been in work situations where the whole leadership of the immigration nonprofit is white and it's all like it's all white lawyers me as the law intern and then all Latina legal assistants and so it's like you know I get mad and that motivates me but you know when it when it gets the best of me I'm just tired so I realized I didn't answer your question originally I kind of just talked to Eva's point yeah but if you want I can comment on that too mm-hmm. so in terms of how my Latina identity influenced me to want to go into law was that the question mm-hmm. okay well you know I said earlier my mom crossed the border illegally two times and I was very fortunate and my mom was very fortunate well she got papers in the time of amnesty you know a lot of my family yeah Mm -hmm. exactly Mm -hmm. so when I was born uh, my mom and my dad both um, had legal status and we never had to worry about that oh you know a lot of my tias and other family members didn't though but looking back they just never showed fear and they never complained and I think you know that's just how latina women have to be like strong like they're not gonna show that they're worried about that you know maybe my tia felt scared sometimes she was in like certain neighborhoods where ice would target and she knew it like even like the panaderia around the corner um, where we would pick up bread all the time like for me i never thought twice about going there maybe my tia i try to avoid it but i honestly i don't know because like they just never showed they were worried about that so to be honest, I didn't really think about issues that the undocumented community was facing or even the immigrant community was facing until I went to college. And I was fortunate enough to um, be able to participate in an organization. I forgot what we called it back then, but there were undocumented students at UCSD who started an organization and they had really informative meetings. And so I learned a lot about issues that undocumented people were facing and um, they got me interested and immigration issues overall and then while I was in San Diego I as a 3L that summer it was 2014 and 47,000 unaccompanied minors showed up at the border mm, that's right that was 2014 yeah and um, so I was a 3L or not 3L we don't call it 3Ls in undergrad I was a junior mm-hmm. and I didn't know what I wanted to do after graduation I have really had no clue but one day, like, you know, my friends told me, hey, there's a protest happening in downtown. Do you want to go? We're protesting that these unaccompanied minors are not getting due process. And, you know, I honestly didn't know what due process was back then. I had no idea, but it just sounded wrong. Like, <laughs> what? We're denying them due process? No way. Like, or, and I guess I had an idea about, you know, like that there was mass deportations going on. Yeah. I think that the kids were showing up and that they didn't even have an opportunity for like a hearing or anything. They were just being sent back. So I was hearing about these issues and I was, you know, really close to the border. So I went to the protest and like, I realized that I could walk away fine that day. There were ICE agents at our protest with police wow. standing side by side. And a lot of people were talking about, you know, taking the mic and saying, I'm undocumented and like, you know, talking about the issues. And I realized that 
they might not make it home that day just because they were advocating for people and i realized i had so much privilege as a u.s citizen you know like i had the privilege to be able to advocate and not have it risk me in a very or sorry affect me in a very real way and that's the day i realized like hey why not me you know like Mm -hmm. when you're like a latina is like from the hood like no one thinks you can accomplish anything to be honest so i never believed in myself i didn't have the confidence i had no idea i was like wait is is this too late should i have been a poli sci major like i had zero clue about how i was gonna do it how to apply to law school which law school to apply to but that was the day that i was like you know what why not me why can't i be the bridge to connect my community to legal resources like why can't i advocate for them and that's that's how it happened it's amazing i love that because that's i feel like that's how women of color make amazing things happen it's just by like being fed up and just being like well i need to do this then you know for better or for worse that's why we're always tired how that's been a part of it's like very formative to you does that influence you wanting to go to law school or is it other things or like what do you like at what point what was the first time that you said to yourself I want to go to law school yeah law school has been on my mind for a while now actually like maybe ever since like middle school I would say oh wow just because little 12 year old Emma <laughs> basically I mean I just realized that my mom had a, was having a very hard time finding an attorney mm-hmm. for her immigration case or just having like just having access to counsel like she did have an attorney but like not really understanding what the process, like what was happening. She, like her documents were taking a while. Like my father did get um, residency through the amnesty as well in the 80s, but my mom wasn't, didn't get, have anything yet. And so after marrying my dad, like my dad petitioned for her. And so it took several years for her to get these documents. And just because of that, like I think it definitely has to do with my, with my parents and also the time. And mm-hmm. so like I really did see the fear in my community and so that, that really did um, affect me in that way, just knowing that, like, hey, I could go into law school and then focus on immigration work as well. And I think that definitely is what has, has been following me this whole time. My mom luckily eventually did receive her residency, so now she has she does have legal status. But how that happened, but she didn't do it. She had to do it through an, an attorney, you know. So at the end of the day, like, I definitely want to focus on that type of work. I definitely do want to focus on human rights law as well. What was it like growing up in Maricopa County when SB 1070 was happening? I think, I remember you telling me something about this, about how you were young, so you didn't really understand, but like reflecting back, you were able to realize like, oh, my mom never wanted to go to the, she never wanted to leave the house. She never wanted to go to the grocery store. She'd always make me go. And I was like, whatever, I'm, I want to go on a walk, so whatever. <laughs> but Yeah, so when, so when that was happening, yeah, like my mom, like a huge fear. And so a lot of my community did too and for me it, it did have to do with the fact that like I understood that sheriff was not a good thing um, but like I didn't know like to like to what extent you know mm-hmm. and so yeah my, my mom my mom would always ask me to go to the store there was one year when my dad actually had to go back to Mexico for the year just to serve in the little government system that they have in my indigenous community and so during this time my mom was like on her own with like three kids at the time and so she had to she had to send my older sister my older sister and I to the store very often to the carnicerias that were like near our house and even like a 10-15 minute walk like it wasn't 
And so, but yeah, she would not want to leave. She, like, I, looking back at it now, I'm very proud of my mom and how mm-hmm. much she has overcome and how much she had just her struggles, knowing um, how much hate there was. And, and and you could definitely see the racial profiling that was occurring. But that, mm-hmm. had, I mean, it's still, I feel like that, that struggle, you could still see it today. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, obviously, I was say. <laughs> racial profiling is still happening today, even though, like, as we 1070 happened. And so a strange thing that happened to in high school um, was that I did mention this during I was in We the People and so we would Wait, what's We the People? Wait, it's, the show? It's, it's basically a, the show the rhyme show? No, it's like, oh. a, it's like a civic education program for um, high school students okay. and so you would go to competitions and talk about like, history and like civic procedure and I like was oh, in the nice. civic like law section You're of my a bar study in early <laughs> and so and so when I mentioned SB 1070 to one of the senators, I mean, no, it was, in, it was one of the judges mm-hmm. of, of We the People. Mm-hmm. He actually mentioned how people were protesting during like, SB 1070, how it was racial profile, that shouldn't be allowed, and how and I remember him telling me how SB 1070 actually was legal mm-hmm. and that it was allowed. And so I just felt like very targeted in that area, especially with this. I was in a very like white space too. Like I'm sorry, but can I just say there's all kinds of constitutional challenges that like could have been made to SB 1070 and were, you know. Yeah, so, that judge was wrong. Yeah, he was <laughs> wrong. <laughs> yes, and so I was targeted in that in that space and did not like it. Well, you know what? I'm sorry. I just realized we've been talking about SB 1070, but, oh, but we didn't really go yeah. into what it is. Do you want to explain? Okay, so SB 1070 was just a Senate bill that was implemented, I believe, I forgot what year it was, things like 2009 or so. It was essentially a, a bill that, that allowed... 2010. 2010, okay. <laughs> so it allowed racial profiling to happen, mm-hmm. that police officers are like, were just able to pull, o- just pull people over. Wait, so it's like, oh, what does it mean to look undocumented? You look brown or black. Yeah, essentially, and that's that is racial profiling. And, but yeah, like just if they had suspicion that someone wasn't documented, like if I had mentioned, and it, it was scary. Like it, it was yeah. it was scary for everyone. And yeah, like Eva said, SB ten seventy was a Senate bill that passed into law, and it essentially gave police in Arizona the quote unquote authority to question people about their immigration status and they would pull them over. I'm not sure if it was like police could just pull people over for suspecting they were undocumented or if during a routine police stop they could additionally question people about their status and I don't know also if it went on to authorize them to detain people. But basically the argument was that they were infringing on federal area of law because immigration is supposed to be Mm -hmm. an exclusively federal. So border patrol, you know, like I, they're supposed to be the people doing that kind of work, not police officers, not state police officers. Yeah. Okay. So I'm on the ACLU's website. Oh my God, this is so funny. My neighbor wrote this. Like literally the dude that lives next to me (laughs) is the ACLU lawyer. Tucson's a very small town. Section 2B of SB 1070 requires Arizona law enforcement officers to determine or attempt to determine a person's immigration status only in two limited circumstances. One, when the officer arrests a person for a state law crime, like a DUI, or when the officer detains a person on suspicion of a state law crime and the officer during the course of that stop, develops reasonable suspicion that the person is an alien unlawfully present in the United States. I said that with air quotes. And so I think the reason why this 
is really it was able to be abused so easily is because reasonable suspicion is like really really easy to establish Mm -hmm. like actually racial profiling is already embedded into this into the idea of reasonable suspicion because factors that can be brought into analyzing reasonable suspicion are like what neighborhood you're in as in like is this a predominantly immigrant black and brown neighborhood that can Mm -hmm. be is this a high crime quote-unquote area that can be brought in to analyze it like what clothes a person's wearing like what colors they're wearing like it's like a very there's a lot of things that buy into racial stereotypes that can be used to determine whether or not reasonable suspicion exists and so that's why when you're asking a police officer in Arizona to determine whether or not there's reasonable suspicion to think that somebody driving isn't documented what that turns into in practice is like does that person look Latin? Does this person look like they're from Latin America? Yeah. Like, can I stop them? Because that's why I feel like I've been stopped so much. Because I would speed every... I've said this already on the podcast. Yeah. I would speed every day in California. I'm not kidding. Like, now I'm, like, thinking about how blessed I was for all, living all those years and speeding. And here, I've already gotten two speeding infractions and a failure to... A civil infraction for failing to stop at a railroad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me, like, I definitely don't like to speed because... I think part of it just has to do with I have more to risk. Like, the officer might pull me over, you know, like, I don't know. (laughs) I definitely feel very over-policed. So I actually live in a neighborhood that is known for being a little more affluent. And there's cameras all down our main road. Need cameras to take a picture of you and your license plate and your phone in your hand. (laughs) It's it's crazy. Like, it's everywhere, you know. Much as you felt it in SoCal, like, in the hood, like, here, yeah. it's just a very heavy, like, police presence. Like, we're watching you, like, big brother status. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I agree with you that it's more intense the further south you get and the closer you are to the border. Because when I was driving in Sedona, I, like, it's become a habit of me to, like, obsessively look in my, like, side and rearview mirror for cops mm-hmm. now. And I would do that in Sedona, and I was like, wow, there just aren't as many cops as there are on the 10 going from Tucson to Florence. Mm-hmm. And it's because we're, we are in the borderlands, and there are border patrol checkpoints and border patrol on the streets, ice on the streets. Like, it's not, it's not just your regular police presence. There's, like, three other entities that can also be policing you, and two of those are actively trying to figure out if you're a citizen or you're not. Yeah, I agree. Definitely, I feel bigger police presence in Phoenix coming from SoCal. Mm. Emma, the big question of the day. Seeing how devastating the current immigration system is currently and how hard our work is every day, what motivates you to still want to go to law school? I believe it just has to do a lot with, with the current work that I'm doing. I decided to get into this detained work, immigration work, Working every day in this, since this type of environment, had encouraged me actually to really? to a, to to continue to go to law school. Like just, I mean, just you all mentioning the fact. I also do speak like three languages. Oh, okay. I That's speak Mexico, Spanish, English. Like, I mean, I grew, I was born here. I grew up here. My parents like taught me Mexico, and then I learned Spanish along the way. And just having that privilege, and I, I definitely feel like I need to use it in a good way. And I think that's my main motivation to continue going to school and like I said in the past like I something that I've been wanting to do for a while and it is devastating you know I I definitely think that 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 it's gonna be hard and there are so many things like against you like 
just like the system isn't set up for for us to make a huge difference yeah. you know like it it really isn't like you won't I feel like it's <laughs> you won't make a huge difference but like but I think in in my in my work I have been able to work with amazing people and just yes. um Eva with the four pro se asylum wins <laughs> I think there were more while I was gone right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so like just helping people win like pro se and like even like with me now without having um yeah like you know without being licensed without being, going to law school yet I mm-hmm. have been able to learn enough and be able to help people navigate the immigration system and detention and I definitely I mean, I'm still connected with some with some clients who did win asylum, and, and I love that. Like, just like knowing how like they're released. I mean, they're eventually could eventually adjust their status to res to become a resident mm-hmm. and um, for their family, petition for their family, like all of this. And like, I think like part of it, like I intervened in some way and like was able to help them out. And so a lot of that has been very encouraging for me. Well, that's so great to hear yeah. because. <laughs> I will say coming, I don't know if you feel it's also Carmen coming from San Diego, although I've heard the San Diego immigration court's really harsh too, but coming from the Bay Area to Southern Arizona, it, it, it did demoralize me a little bit because in San Francisco, the asylum grant rate is in between 20 and 80%, depending on the judge. Obviously, there's still huge issues with discretion there also because <laughs> it's not that the person with 80% of case approvals is getting different people or getting like the rightful asylum claims. It's just that these judges can deny really on a whim. Like, I just don't like your hair, so I'm going to, you know, it's not really that. But, like, they theoretically have the basis to make a negative asylum decision for whatever reason they want. It's in their discretion. So, um, actually, I never really practiced immigration law in San Diego. I never went before an immigration judge in San Diego. This is a little plug for law students. I actually did criminal defense on state and federal level. I uh, clerked for a judge. I even did employment law. So, Me too. Like yeah. this summer, yeah. <laughs> so you actually, you know, go for it. Take the internships, get the experience, you know. I agree. But I was prepared kind of to come to Arizona, and I knew it was like the wild, wild west. Like That's Arizona. what people told me, but I wasn't really prepared to live in it every day. Because like, yeah. it devastates me to see claims that I... I've seen claims win before in front of San Francisco judges that here get denied without even taking testimony, which is a due process violation, but occurs like regularly. And I think to be a lawyer, you, you do kind of have to buy into the rule of law as a concept, you know? Like, because uh, otherwise it's like, why do this work? Like, you, you do kind of have to believe into this in the system a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, why do we put so much time and effort into our cases, you know? And, like, for me, I was devastated when I worked on an asylum brief for a woman from Central America who had experienced uh, violence in her family. And I worked on the brief, like, on my own time on the week over two weekends because I knew that writing a full asylum brief is more than what I'm expected to do, whatever. And, like, the judge the judge denied asylum without even considering the particular social groups that I had written in my brief. Now, like, that, that, like, that demotivated me for a really long time because it was like, why did I do that? Like, why did I waste my weekends doing, I mean, okay, I didn't waste my weekend because, like, the client deserved that work, but it's hard to keep myself motivated in a jurisdiction like this because it's, it, I feel like decisions are made based on the whims of their mood. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand that. And you're totally right. But also, I do want to say, the bigger the fuck up of the judge, 
the greater the appeal. I know. And if I can... It's so hard to practice that way. (laughs) (laughs) Let me give you all an example of uh, something that was just, like, outright so wrong. So there was an immigration judge that was presiding over, you know, an asylum hearing. And the prosecutor asked the asylum applicant, so why did you tell Border Patrol that you did not have fear of return to your country? And then the judge thought like, ooh, that's a good one. And he just started like to tune out and I think even wrote some notes. I don't know. He just was not present after that. And the woman had a very valid explanation. She said, well, you know, Border Patrol never talked to me. They asked my son. They interviewed my son. And I didn't want to say in front of my son what was going on because I was trying to hide that harsh reality from my son who was, you know, a little boy. Mm -hmm. And that's a totally valid explanation. And then the judge wrote an opinion, you know, after he denied the asylum, he was like, oh, and when the Border Patrol asked, or sorry, and when the prosecutor asked her, (laughs) right? When, When he asked, like, why didn't you tell Border Patrol that you had a fear of return? She sat there dumbfounded and didn't know what to say. And it's like, were you not there? Like, you know, she clearly had an explanation. Yeah. So that made for a really good appeal. I will say that the other day also, I was in court and I work with detained minors, detained, unaccompanied children, but also we have some released clients and they're released locally in Phoenix. So, I didn't know that. yeah, so actually every Friday in Phoenix, there is a detained docket for unaccompanied minors and they all go like it's like 30 of them filling up the court one by one right but then also some of them are among like the regular um, immigrant population here at phoenix for in um, removal proceedings so i was at court and this attorney knows where i work and all that and he's like oh yeah so but you you go to kitty court every friday and i was like that is so insulting like and so what did you mean by that does he not represent kids no like i guess he didn't i don't know well usually the thing about unaccompanied minors is that they're not here with their parents mm-hmm. and uh, minors who come with parents usually get consolidated on the parents case mm-hmm. so i guess that most attorneys represent the parent and mm-hmm. the kids are attached to the parents case mm-hmm. so i don't have that i directly represent the minors and you know it was really like offensive that this like man is yeah. telling me yeah, i practice in kitty co- and well also it's i think harder to work with kids in a lot of ways they're not reliable narrators like yeah like i'm getting <laughs> these know. denials I that just, like, just don't make sense like no, from uscis like yeah. all across the board i'm like bruh can i get a break anywhere <laughs> i don't want trump's presidency to mean that like we accept things that we shouldn't be accepting mm-hmm. you know because like because we had so many critiques of Obama back yeah. then, and, like, I don't want it to become, like, oh, well, you know, he wasn't that bad. Like, we should, like, I don't want us to become complacent, basically. And I don't know how to talk about how Obama was better without seeming complacent. Definitely. So the message is please get out there and vote yeah. for someone better and help a girl out. Like, <laughs> y'all can help, help me out. Help Latina. Yes, please. Y'all can help me so much by, you know, like, getting someone better into <laughs> presidency. And, yeah, let's... I agree. I don't want to yeah. comment on Obama or anything like that. <laughs> but it makes a huge difference. Yeah. So please help a girl out. <laughs> yeah. And also, obviously, like, we want better policies for those directly impacted as well. Yeah. Exactly. Elections are coming up. <laughs> I know. I'm so over Kamala. Is it Kamala or Kamala? Oh, I, I don't know. Kamala. 
Kamala Harris. Yeah, no, I mm-hmm. I say it like that too, but apparently it's Kamala. Kamala Harris. Which is so. like, it doesn't sound as good. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So it's her, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. I don't know. I think I might like Elizabeth Warren a little bit better than Bernie. Yeah, honestly. Because he makes weird comments about identity politics. Oh, you know, I think I heard something about, like, oh, it's not about skin color. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, it's 2019. It's about skin color still, okay? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Like, I'm with you. I want that to be the case eventually, but we're not there yet, you know? And let's leave it at, for now, not Trump. And then we'll research a little more. Yes, just not Trump, (laughs) and we're good. between the Mexican government and indigenous communities because we have seen in our work a lot of indigenous folks fleeing Mexico seeking asylum because of what they face in Mexico. So what are your thoughts on that relationship? I think my answer will be mostly based off of my parents Mm -hmm. and like just like stories that I've heard and just their experiences Mm -hmm. since like I haven't I didn't actually I didn't grow up in Oaxaca like which is or what the mixtec people mm-hmm. my parents identify as. And um, I think a lot of there's a lot of racism in Mexico, I would say, against indigenous communities. Like I think it's very evident in recently with the movie Roma that mm-hmm. came out and the racism that Yanitza Aparicio has been facing, uh, you know, mm-hmm. with other just, you know, me- Mexican people who are who aren't indigenous. And seem very white passing. Yeah, very white passing. Like the actresses you know. that were commenting on how she, who were saying weird things about how she didn't deserve it, were like very white presenting. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think a lot of it. I mean, people refer to indigenous peoples as Indios, and that's very. Con- I mean, like for them, like in a condescending way, though. I think you, I've heard a lot, a lot of the term like blanqueamiento and like mejorando mm-hmm. la raza. You know, like mm-hmm. you like if you're like a brown person, like. The, you know, and you, like, partner with a, like, you know, other person with, like, whiter skin color, like, you're able to, like, mejorar la raza in a way. So I, th- I think that's, like, pre- prevalent in Mexico and maybe, like, a lot of, like, other, like, you know, Latin American countries yeah. that have indigenous peoples as well. Yeah. And so I would say that, that, that that's very present and that doesn't really allow these um, indigenous peoples, like, you know, like, like my parents, like, you know, to have access to a whole lot of to a whole lot of like such as education or just like future career opportunities if they wanted it um i know that in oaxaca like in the little indigenous area that i'm from like it's called like san juan like santa cruz and in that area education does like I, i believe you're able to reach up until middle school in that living in that area but you have to leave to be able to go to high school or attain a a college degree and so with that I know that that with just with cousins leaving and things like that I know that with their experience they did tell me that they might sometimes get made fun of for speaking indigenous languages or just having that experience and I actually did experience that even like in the U.S. like when oh, I was yeah. when I was growing up speaking Mexico mm-hmm. like in my elementary school like um, a lot of students spoke Spanish mm-hmm. and 
I got made fun of for speaking Mixteco. Like people when you were in kindergarten, like when you first started. <laughs> when I first started, like people would like ask me like, "Are you speaking Chinese or what language?" Actually, people did call my language mix like you know Mixteco, like like you know Chinese, and mm-hmm. I'm just like because they did not understand it, and I'm just like it's literally a language from, from Mexico, like. I don't understand like and then being like you know it's like so young and experiencing that and like just like trying to explain to people it's like the language my parents taught me I like it was hard for me to like be like to have pride in that you know like I think I recently I think it was like up until like college actually when I like recently like became to feel have a have a lot more pride and be and be happy that I have this experience and actually like be able to embrace my culture a lot more like I think Having that experience in elementary school like really did not allow me to really be proud of it, which unfortunately I wish I was more proud. But people don't have. I think a lot being indigenous doesn't allow you to have access to things that you would want to have access to. But in a sense, like I know also that indigenous communities do would prefer to have self governance. Like yeah. that. That's also like something. So it's like what's what are the like you know like things that you have to it's give like you up. Catch 22, like twenty two, because it's like you want self governance, but you don't have the resources to kind. Well, it's yeah. like reparations are due. I believe so too, and yeah. so <laughs> I definitely believe so too. And but yeah, like in my little community, like they do have self governance, and um, the the national like like police has to like permission to enter, like and things wow. like that. Like that's like, huge. You know, and like and, and I appreciate that you have to. For them, like they're able to like run their little like system, and um, it's very communal, like which is what I really do appreciate, and like westernization, like, you know, happening, and like people, I think a lot of people in these indigenous communities want like more, you know, like they, they they want more education, they they want to be able to be seen and be able to have access to like you know what other people in Mexico do, and and I think a lot of it with being indigenous, you you just have you're you're at a disadvantage at that point, and. It's just trying to be able to have like more access and but I think that's what's happening in Mexico. But like I said, like it happens, it's happening in a lot of other countries. Like as Carmine has mentioned in Guatemala, like mm-hmm. and um, can I just say, while we're on the topic, this is really making me think of Eva's right. It happens in Guatemala, and so I know obviously my family has some indigenous roots, and it's not that I'm ashamed. It's no. just that I feel I'm. I was so privileged. My family was privileged, you yeah. know, in Guatemala, like. Yeah and not marginalized so that's why i never like rush to say like i'm indigenous and like you know so i feel like that's kind of something different like while we're on the topic you know eva and you're trying to bring a voice to specifically central american people as a bicultural latina my dad would call me an india because he's from argentina like he has italian ancestry and like i'm you you all can't see me but i'm pretty light-skinned i have like light-colored eyes you know like and i'm pretty white passing but my dad would be like when he'd get back it's India because to him it's if I my mom is Guatemalan like like I'm indigenous but um, it's unfortunate that my family lost that history but I just can't claim it you know all I can offer is my allyship and I can definitely you know I'm sure that you've seen like all the Central American clients too no yeah yeah and I think like I went through this whole identity journey because when I realized that Salvadoran people are a mix of Spanish colonizers and indigenous, you know, what is now called Salvadorian peoples. And it was really hard for me because my family did did grow up with privilege. Because I, like, I recently realized what allows you privilege in Latin America and, like, in Central America in particular. And it's knowing Spanish, being Catholic, 
and being and like generally having lighter skin Mm -hmm. and and also living in an urban area and my like that just like automatically if you have those things your opportunities are going to be vastly different from a person who is, is like speaks an indigenous language is monolingual in that language lives in a rural area where they don't have access to a lot of opportunities that you have in a city and so I just had to realize, like, I gotta step back. Like, I can't claim indigeneity. One, because it has been lost in our history. In 1932, the Salvadoran government was pretty successful in in massacring almost every indigenous person that lived in the country. And so here we are now, where, like, I just can't claim that ancestry. And I wanted to really badly, but I just realized, like, out of respect, I just can't. And mm-hmm. it's just not my place. I think... It was hard to come to this realization because growing up in a white suburb, I just always felt very different. I felt very otherized and and it was difficult to then realize like, yes, you had that experience, but also you have privilege in relation to this other group of people and you need to recognize that. And, you know, and it's, and I think like with the Chicana movement, I do think it's a little strange that people or trying to claim indigenous ancestry when it's like it's ahistorical. Do you really know what your roots are? And like what it and then it also just calls into question like what does it mean to be indigenous? You know, like what well, what do you think? How would you define that, you know? I think a lot of it has to do with saying mm-hmm. and like what my parents have lived to that struggle like for me. A lot of it for me, like I'm able to claim it because they grew up in this area, they understand from to be able to, to serve in, in the little like municipios and so my dad was recently like like appointed after 10 years like every 10 years they reappoint you and he was reappointed again to be like you know an alcalde in the area like to be like um a, a mayor slash judge in the in, in the participating in those um in that little indigenous community that i'm from mm-hmm. and so and especially like like he still owns land there like just like i think that the language has a lot to do with it as well like i do speak mixteco and i'm very proud of that now mm-hmm. and um and just like those struggles as well and I, th- I think that's i think that's like enough for me to to have those roots as well like, like um i think a lot of it also has to do with like traditional medicine yeah. you know like we definitely still rely on that like my mom um, goes back to Mexico and, and they have like curanderas and like help them out and like, the thing that has a lot to do with like that comes a lot from like like the indigenous community too and like I'm and I kind of like I believe in that I live in the U.S. like I know that in in Arizona like there is like a, a little small population of mixtec peoples and like we wow. we'd be like have like little like get-togethers like little parties like we're still very communal like if there's like a funeral that if somebody passes away in the U.S. um everyone like goes by house to house like like they know where like our people live, you know, and they come to us like, hey, like this person passed away, you need to gather money for their, like they're gonna, their body is going to be sent back to, you know, to Oaxaca to be buried there. And so like we, it's very like, you know, like we all come together for that. And like, I think just me being, continuing to being involved in that way, like allows me to still claim those roots for sure. And I think, think, like I said, a lot comes into it, but for me, it's definitely just all of, all of that. To me, that makes sense because you have a lived experience that's directly connected mm-hmm. to it. Whereas for me and for Carmen, it's just theoretical. Like mm-hmm. in the past, we mm-hmm. had an indigenous connection. Mm-hmm. And so we just can't talk about it now because we don't have that knowledge. You know, mm-hmm. you're like deeply embedded in the culture. So that's why you can claim it. And I will mm-hmm. say my clients, I have a lot of indigenous clients from Guatemala. Yeah. 
I feel they would be like very insulted and they would look at me like what the fuck like if I tried to say like oh I'm you know indigenous Guatemala they'd be like no you're clearly not at all you know and it just it would they they don't see me as being one of them just because I grew up here and so many things because I have an accent when I speak Spanish you know I don't have a I feel like a kind of gringa. I don't think you have an accent. Thanks, amiga. <laughs> but I guess to them, you know, like, they hear me. Have they said that to you? Well, yeah, when I go to Guatemala, <laughs> like, they just know. Like, it's very rare the occasion that I can get away with being Spanish without them knowing I'm from the U.S. Oh, yeah, but... that was just my family being shady. But... <laughs> no, but yeah, so even <laughs> I feel they would, you know, be even offended if I tried to say, like, oh, I'm, I'm yeah. like you, I'm indigenous. And, yeah. You know. No, because it's like what it means is like you face a particular struggle because you're bred as indigenous and so we just can't claim it. and you rep the culture and you put yourself at risk for repping the culture yes that's a that's a perfect way to put it about how you feel about being a Central American lawyer in this moment. Where, and this came up for me recently because I was talking to somebody, he's Garifuna from Honduras, and he was sharing Mm -hmm. that he feels like Central Americans are criminalized, and like if, when he's in the U, when, now that he's been in the US and people have found out that he's Central American, he feels like they associate him with criminality. And I feel, and like, I think for me, like, my survival mechanism is to kind of tune out a lot of what Trump, like, a lot of the Central American hate, I tune it out because if I really sit down with it and, like, really process it, like, I think it does become a little bit much for me. And I think it's really powerful for us to be in the legal profession as Central American women in this moment. How do you feel? I feel like it's very easy for a Central American identity to get erased in all Mm -hmm. of it. So I work in an office with a lot of Latina women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of nice because I don't feel like, oh, I'm this, like, token minority or anything like that. And we're pretty diverse, you know, like, there's people from Puerto Rico, Venezuela, Honduras, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm the only... Uh-huh, Mexico, I'm the only Guatemalan. Something that is taken for is like how dangerous public transportation is, how dangerous the buses are mm-hmm. in Guatemala because bandieros know that the bus drivers have a lot of cash on them and they're like driving all day off the route. So buses get hit up a lot by bandias. And actually one of my cousins, she was on a bus and she lost a piece of her ear to a bullet that yeah. a bandiero like sent flying at her. And the man sitting in front of her, he was killed. So this kind of harm, like, you know, even just minors traveling alone on a bus is dangerous. Yeah. And it's like, that's not enough for a judge here. You know, they're like, what do you mean? Like, who cares? Like, he was traveling on a bus. Like, what does that have to do with anything? And it's kind of something that I personally know. That I did two intakes with people who were bus drivers. And I don't remember if they were from Guatemala specifically. But they talked about this. It was from Central America, definitely. And they talked about this exact thing about how bandilleros would try and rob them in their bus journeys mm-hmm. and like it was it was a really sad moment for me when I had to be like you can't apply for asylum just so you know there's this case about Salvadorian taxi drivers that where the court rejected the particular social group we can try and make it again for you 
But just know that, like, there's this case that's going to make it so that the judge in Arizona can be, like, denied. Yeah. So I will say, on a personal level, it's hard to be in a position where I know what they mean, I know what they're talking about, and I know that it's not enough in the eyes of the law. Yeah. And I will share this story that kind of haunts me, right? But if you all will, there's a bridge in Guatemala that I travel on every time I go back. It's like, you know, highly trafficked bridge. So it's called El Puente Belice in the capital. And there's a story that there was this little boy and Andieros, you know, hit him up to be part of their gang. And they told him that you're either going to get on the bus with this gun and get the money or sorry and kill the bus driver because i guess the bus driver had not paid up you're either gonna get on the bus and kill the bus driver or we're gonna throw you off of the puente belice and he's 12 years old you know very young and he couldn't do it so in the end they threw him off of the puente belice and i have every day every day multiple miners in the shelters tell us like oh i was threatened by gangs i'm here in america because gangs threatened me and it's like i know what you mean I know how serious it is. Yeah, I know how serious it is. And I know that's not enough. And it's hard because they're like, oh, you don't understand. Like, you know, they're like, you don't sympathize with me. Like all these things. And it's like, I'm so sorry. I'm just trying to tell you how it is. As an unaccompanied minor, if you choose to not fight your case and take a voluntary departure while you're detained, you know, um, by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, the government will pay for your return to your country of origin. Which is different for adults, because adults do have to pay for their flight back or bus ride back to their country of origin. Yeah, so if you're a minor aging out, quote-unquote, as we call it, aging out, but it means you're turning 18. You're going to lose your rights that you have as an unaccompanied minor. So you're going to go into adult detention, and if you don't take a voluntary departure before then, like like Yvette said, you have to pay for it, and that could mean you're stuck there until you come up with the money. I know, because I was going to say, this might, I don't know, if there's somebody who's like rich and listening to this they might not get automatically why that's a big deal well if they can't pay for it they literally just stay in or have to take a deportation order which will disqualify them from like almost every kind of legal relief in the future if they want to come back to the u.s legally and like that's a huge decision to make when you're 17 or 16 or 15 or whatever yeah exactly so you know it's like it's sad because i want to tell them the reality like you have a very weak asylum claim if you turn to your country, like, I understand, you very likely will be killed. Yeah. But you have a very weak asylum claim, and if you don't take this voluntary departure, you might just be detained in Arizona. And, you know, immigrant detention, I'm sure Eva has said this, is like criminal detention. It's yep. like, there's... What What is the difference? Not, there is is no. there a difference? I mean, they exist you know, in the same like, places. Yeah, like, the same companies, the same private companies build Literally these the same, buildings. same... Yeah, exactly. So, it's, it's very hard. Even though I'm Central America they still see me as an other as someone else in sympathetic and i mean okay so (laughs) maybe what are what are the highlights i guess it's nice when build rapport with a client because i've seen where they're from like oh i know you live by cincuentros and i took a bus there one time on my way to like la guatitlan it's like you know and like we have a conversation or have you ever seen this place or been here sometimes it's hard because i'm like oh i've toured these places with money as an american and like that came up for me too i realized i got my privilege check real quick because i was i was this is before i started working where we work I was working with a Guatemalan client and I was trying to like establish rapport with her. I was 
I just wasn't sensitive. And um, I was like, oh, yeah, I went to La Cotitlan recently. Like, kind of, like, expecting that she had been there because it was such a beautiful place in the country. And she was so poor that she had never left her town. Yeah. And I felt so dumb and insensitive, like, as soon as I said that. You know, because then she was like, oh, wow, where, like, where is that? Like, she, like, didn't even know what it was. Yeah. I've traveled so much more than the majority yeah. of my clients. Like, they, you're right. Some of them have never left. But it is, you know, sometimes I tell them, mom, she's Guatemalan. She came to this country when she was 18 years old and she crossed the border illegally. And, you know, my grandma lives in the capital and I love to go back to Guatemala and I feel very proud to be Guatemalan. And this is why I'm here doing this work. Mm -hmm. And they're like, okay, well, she's not like me exactly. But, you know, sometimes when you're asking a kid to tell you everything about their lives and you share a little bit with them, Mm -hmm. it, it can help. So that is a highlight of being a Guatemalan person. That was on a personal level, but in terms of how you said being criminalized, honestly, sometimes I'm just like, look, I'm a hood rat, okay? And I do not give a fuck about the law. And I'm going to live my life and do what I want to do. And, like, I remember we have a friend, and he was like, well, is, you know, how do you fake being a lawyer? Like, don't you have to, like, uphold the law? But here you are saying these things. And I'm just like, I don't know, I give a fuck about the law. Sorry, I guess I took an oath. Like, that says otherwise, but don't disbar me. <laughs> but, um, like... Don't disbar me. Yeah, you know, like... So I have, but I have the privilege again, maybe because, you know, I'm light skinned, I speak English in a certain way and all these things to where Mm -hmm. like maybe people wouldn't directly criminalize me. Part of having to like justify that, like I am a good citizen, that we we can make good citizens. Like, you know, like maybe I'm not a perfect citizen at all, but- I'm just a human being. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I have value just because of that yeah exactly exactly and you know but it's very different like when i'm representing my clients like i definitely have to be that good girl in court because i am representing someone who has the potential to be criminalized like you know and we do we deal with like trafficking and like what is the most highly trafficked substance i guess like sex and drugs right so though both of those things are looked at so poorly that working on a tv case or a case of like trafficking and the trafficking and like Mm -hmm. You know, like, I I can't really be myself in that way. Oh, I can't be like, oh, fuck the law. Like, no, like, law is the law of respecting the laws, everything in that situation. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you have to kind of... All of the criminalization they're throwing at our community, you have to put on your best face. You have to put on your best act. You have to get up there in front of a judge do everything perfectly and give your best argument as to why you know like your client deserves a certain type of relief or something like that you don't have the luxury of criticizing that in that moment you know on the record officially you don't have the luxury of criticizing anything and it's really hard like when you're like when you have radical politics like we have you know just like reconciling (laughs) yeah what it means to because we're also like very we're both very strong women and oh thanks amiga (laughs) (laughs) and there's a lot of judges who expect certain things from women lawyers like like this came up at happy hour yesterday and it was like kind of joking but it kind of wasn't like the women lawyers were sharing how 
when they've been in tough situations where they're really trying to negotiate, they'll like put on extra makeup <laughs> or like or you know smile. Yeah, because, for sure. Yeah, because they're like, okay, that's what the, that's what this male judge wants. That's what this like male ICE officer wants, and it's really hard. So I have trouble because I feel like I'm not being authentic all the time, but it's because I'm serving this other person. Yeah, you know, and like that's and that's why I do it, and I'm. I'm privileged to be able to do it, but it's because, especially because I'm very, I am prideful and I am a little bit stubborn. Mm. Like I, I hate that I have to do that, you know? It doesn't sit well with me. I don't know. I don't know that I even think about that anymore. I think that I, I you, pick you know. out I, in my mind. I'm like, I'm going to wear this suit. I'm going to put like, I have like really thick, big curly hair. And I'm like, I'm going to put my hair up. No one's going to yeah. know the potential for bigness that my hair can reach. I wear my contacts instead of my glasses. And I don't even think about it because I'm just, I'm doing this for a minor. And I have to be honest, sometimes I really love my clients. Like I develop like really strong relationships with them and like we were having like an off-the-record conversation about boundaries i guess and how (laughs) you know like it's just hard because like you i don't know like you you have feelings and like you're like oh my gosh like this minor has been through everything and like she's so sweet and she's so smart and she deserves everything and she does a better life and you know you love her and like like especially like being central american and seeing so many central americans Mm -hmm. especially like close to my age it's like I really, I realized that that could have been me. Mm-hmm, that if my yeah. parents didn't make the kind of arbitrary decision to leave in the 80s, I would be where they are. And I would, and that's why I try and always commit myself to every case because I just think in that situation I would want somebody yeah. like me to be my lawyer. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think it's a little hard when, when you, I mean, I know I'm not such an American, but like, with just being like, no, but you, you see indigenous, the, Mexicans indigenous, as well. indigenous Mexicans as well, knowing that like I look like them, yeah. you know, like I'm like, I, I look like you, like I, I could very much have been in your situation for sure, and especially like a lot of like their claims, you know, like I've, I've seen like people being threatened due to land and stuff like that, and I'm like, well, my, yeah, you know my, what that's about, you know, like I, I know my parents own land in like my, in like Oaxaca and like you know in these indigenous communities and how, like these other indigenous people are being threatened like you know due to land and just knowing that i look like them i think that's a lot that's that has been the, the most difficult part of of the seven war just just just, 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 just looking yeah. like people that and especially mm-hmm. like i've been to guatemala as well you know and mm-hmm. i definitely people thought i was what i was what I, yeah. I was like what people would probably you know? think eva was guatemala before they would think yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah because like they're because i I mean, like, even with, like, a little bit of my Spanish, until, like, they heard me speak, like, you know, they kind of did think I had an accent <laughs> as well. But, like, just with my appearance as well, like, I I know that in Guatemala, like, I studied abroad there during college, and and I would go 
to like the little markets and things like that like the farmers markets like they wouldn't give me the tourist prices and I, I was I was traveling with other students who were white and they would have like different prices you know for things like they would give me the local prices because I looked like you know Guatemalan yeah, and then like great. and then which I yeah, get that it was, that was great I was I appreciated that but the white the white like, students wouldn't get those prices they would get the tourist prices I think it impacts me because like I don't know, like, I, and I wish that people in our profession were more sensitive to this, that immigrants right now are being dehumanized by this administration, mm -hmm. by Border Patrol, mm -hmm. by ICE, and like, we feel it as an attack against us, because we identify with these communities, and we feel like, like, this, it's such, I don't know, there's some clients that I just, like, put a lot of effort into their cases, because I'm like, you, like, one, I'm thinking of one client in particular who I love so much, because she literally reminds me of my grandma. Aww. And it's, I had to put like 120% into her yeah. case because I was like, my, it's like my fucking grandma who's detained right now. And I think mm -hmm. that like that emotional toll that it takes on your heart of realizing people who look like me are dehumanized. Like people who look like my family are treated like dogs. Yeah. Like it, it makes me sad. And it, it, I wish that there was more room for a conversation about how a white person doing this work is not going to feel that way. Yeah. They're just not. And I wish that there was more space for us to have recognition of, like, how much more we have to go through emotionally to do it. Yeah, I will say, you're making me think of when I worked for the Federal Defenders of San Diego. So that means that um, I worked with the defense attorney who were defending people who were accused of federal crimes. Mm -hmm. And in San Diego, that was mostly immigration-related because right. half like, of the federal... Cases. Yeah, half of the federal dock in San Diego was illegal reentry cases. So people being criminalized for crossing the border illegally. Second time. A second time, right. And because it's reentry. <laughs> but so I would go into court as an intern and like literally the all the bench where people were like in their jumpsuits and handcuffs, like it was just full of just Latino people. Yeah. Just, you know. And sometimes I was the only Latina person in there. It was like me and the defendants. We were the Latinos and everyone else was white. Mm. And, you know, that was like all the time. I There was a few Latina attorneys. So it would be like, okay, two of us, you know, but then... As public defenders? Yeah, or like federal yeah, defenders, you know. And maybe, if that, two of us, right? In a room where it was like 20 defendants who were Latinos, 38 defendants who were Latinos, and everyone else was white. And it was very, I guess, isolating. And I will say that on the flip side, outside of the court, I feel we sometimes like people will be more likely to identify you as a defendant as well yeah. than as the lawyer. Like, yeah. I'll remember, I remember one time me and a legal assistant stopped by a coffee shop after court and and the girl who took our order, she was Latina, I'm assuming based on, you know, her appearance and also her Spanish. And so she was like oh where are you two coming from like dressed so nice and the legal assistant goes oh like we're coming from court and she goes oh and her face like falls and she gets really serious and she's like oh i'm so sorry i hope everything is okay <laughs> and i was like thinking like oh actually i'm the attorney she's the legal assistant i think even our community sometimes like we will see that mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that happens a lot with me as well, actually. Yeah. Whenever I go into the detention centers, if the guards don't know that, that I, I'm there for like a, like a legal visit, 
they think that I'm there for like a family visit they're like oh yeah. like are you here to like you know family visits are on the weekends you know I'm like well actually I'm here for a legal visit you know like I'm here to see a client like that I'm working with like if I have a lot of fewer opportunities to go into adult detention centers because I work with minors there's been two separate occasions where the guards assumed I was anyone but the lawyers yeah. so one time I was there and it was me and two other Latina attorneys from my office and we're waiting on a bench outside the courtroom because the court is not open yet and it's like really why would we be there dressed like all yeah. professionally except to right. you know like we're the legal I counsel I almost feel like it's also my outfit when they like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like why why would you think why I'm standing I out here in a that? suit no, right yeah. no but it's crazy because we're in a suit yeah, right yeah. like we have a big ass purse because it's full of legal <laughs> files like who else would we be but it's like these clues are not enough to overcome the fact that we are latina women and historically like we've never been in these roles yeah. so the guard he was like you know like in his head it's like there's can only be one latina lawyer if that so he knew my friend who was there as the attorney like she actually was representing the person and so he knew her he was familiar with her and he was like oh okay so she's a lawyer He was like oh so um are you to the family me and the other attorney and we're like I've no. been asked that too right the family mm-hmm. and we're like no we're lawyers and he's like oh um what do you mean like legal assistance or paralegals what do you call it and we're like you like no like that's yeah. the bar right exactly <laughs> right so we're like no we're the lawyers and he was like oh okay but like and then he tried to like just kind of blow it off he's like oh but like what is the difference between a paralegal and like a legal assistant something like that something dumb right he was yeah. so confused and like just the fact that there was three Latina lawyers all together in one place was like the most confusing thing in the world to him. I do have something to add. I don't really know, Yvette, what is your style? If there has to be, like, a happy ending or not, <laughs> but... It's, it's no. I keep it real. Okay, I'm kind of one of those persons that, like, I'm kind of optimistic. I think it's just how I am, and, and I like to inspire people, you know, especially younger Latina, because I didn't have anyone. I didn't have any role models. Um, so mm-hmm. if you're out there listening, I know that um, at one point, I talked about how sometimes we feel like it's not possible to make a huge difference because a lot of times like we like, we're just so busy with the cases like you know earlier i said my story about i was at the protest and i was like one of my thoughts was where are the latina lawyers where is the community defending community where are they at and it's like now i'm in that position and if you all don't see me if i'm not visible to you it's because like literally i work for a nonprofit and i'm swamped with cases you know like i'm just out here trying my best to like meet my deadlines and like all my clients need a million different things and it's tight right so if i can have this opportunity to let you all know that it's still worth it and i think there is potential to make a quote-unquote huge difference immigration law you might be in front of a shitty judge Mm -hmm. but something nice is that you can appeal that judge's decision and then you can even sometimes appeal it again like get a second chance and you know if you make it to a high enough court like the ninth circuit the beauty is that when you get to a high court there's even more 
states under the jurisdiction of that court. So the win you get at higher court is gonna be a win for many people. That's true. Okay, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, you get a, a case that has a unique enough issue that the higher court will review. You have the potential to make a huge difference for all of the states, all of the people detained, or all of the immigrants in that jurisdiction. And I would say that those times may be like rare. I know it sounds glamorous, yeah. like they're a little bit rare. It's not glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> it's not every day. It's but definitely um, but it can feel you yeah and it's not just you know the aclu doing all of these sexy it is lawsuits absolutely not just the aclu, <laughs> not just ACLU. <laughs> like i would say like you were like me and you thought like oh my gosh i'm just a latina from the hood who's gonna take me serious like how can i do this how can i make a difference like there is a very real chance for you so i uh, don't don't feel hopeless i think it's like a really important also because I think people distinguish impact litigation from direct legal services and they say that like with direct legal services you only impact one person at a time Mm -hmm. but I think our work shows us that that's not true because if you like you said if you go up to the BIA and if you go up to the Ninth Circuit you can impact so many people and there's people in our office Mm -hmm. who have litigated cases that have Mm -hmm. changed immigration law and I hate that is hate the right word I really dislike (laughs) that the, the ACLU does get a lot of credit for this, for policies and mm-hmm. case law decisions that impact a bunch of people when it, oftentimes it, with the people who are really issue spotting and the people who are taking these issues all the way up to like the Ninth Circuit are people who are in our position doing direct, you know, what is considered in the law world as direct legal services. So mm-hmm. I think it's really, really important. Yeah, I agree. I also just want to add more thinking about going to law school like I am as well to go for it because for me get that experience first like like that's what I'm doing right now like I'm working in detained immigration work because I do want to go into immigration law or you can't either be as a legal assistant paralegal or just being just volunteering you know with like any type of like law firm that you want to um, get that experience from I definitely am getting that experience with doing this type of work with the clients I'm working with and with that like it had definitely encouraged me actually to to continue this path and actually apply to law school and actually go to law school and that that's still the end goal for me and um, <laughs> for me it's a lot has to do with like I said like I had mentioned before with my family and with the clients I'm working with even though you know like I mentioned like Carmen has mentioned like it you can't really make a huge difference in the system I definitely do believe that detention centers shouldn't exist like it's mm-hmm. like it definitely is criminalizing these immigrants and the conditions aren't the best either and conditions are terrible they're awful and it shouldn't be that way like you know people shouldn't be detained if they're trying to get legal status there's no reason to detain someone who's trying to apply for a visa or asylum Mm -hmm. or there really is no reason and it definitely but they are though like you know like they are living in these conditions and it's it's awful for them like a lot of people actually will want to rescind their application mm-hmm. or like recent like you know say like you know what i'm just gonna go back to my country because even though i fear returning to my country mm-hmm. like that's living like hiding in my country is better than this type of condition like than like being criminalized and being in like essentially criminal custody at that point like mm-hmm. and it's awful like and it shouldn't it should not be that way like these people should be able to be released and be able to like you know continue their immigration case like without being detained Mm -hmm. but that's not what's happening like currently and the conditions are are really awful and i do not 
I definitely do not support that in any way. But um, right now, this is what we can do, you know, like with me just su supporting them and like, you know, Carmen and Yvette being there as well. Um, the, like, you know, we're, we're doing the best that we can. And that, like I said, that's definitely what has encouraged me personally to continue this path and to be able to go to law school and be be licensed and be an immigration attorney at the end. And Yvette and Carmine has definitely inspired me like in, oh. <laughs> in many ways, like Carmine representing um, unaccompanied minors and and Yvette just with, with all the work that, that she does in adult detention. This is definitely very inspirational to me. Like they've gone to law school, they've had this experience and I'm very, I'm on, I am honestly very excited for my journey. And yes, I'm, very, <laughs> I'm very excited to become uh, like you know, a, a Latina, a Latina, yes. <laughs> and to be able to represent people, and I definitely do want to focus on indigenous rights as well. Yes. And with with having those roots, like I know that I'm very privileged with being, um, like I, I mentioned before, being a U.S. citizen, mm -hmm. and I am going to use that platform to be able to advocate for other indigenous groups, either be from Mexico or Central America. Or for, for you all thinking about going to law school, just try to get that type of experience like as I am right now. Yay, and that's <laughs> a great note to end on. Put one more thing on yeah. the record. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Maybe on we, the record. <laughs> maybe we all want to get some lunch. Maybe listeners are tired. But I just have to say, you know, sometimes when someone takes on a project to give a voice to Central Americans, you know, or focus on Central Americans. Like, there's some saltiness in the community. Um, not calling anyone out, but Mexicans, <laughs> they will be like, oh, like, that's not fair. Why just Central Americans, you know? And I have to say, like, for me doing this, it felt even weird to talk about Central America so much because I've never done that before. Yeah. And it felt even almost like wrong. I was like, wait, are we talking about it too much? And right. you know when you would ever question like, oh, a podcast focused entirely on like Mexico or like Mexican identity. On immigration issues, we're like, only talking about Mexico. Right? Yeah. yeah. So like it felt even like weird and foreign to me as a Central American to have this opportunity to just focus on, you know, like Central America and indigenous communities. And I don't have ever felt the same but i feel like this is why it's so important to be an ally within the latino community mm -hmm. and like really kind of stop and pause and think about who's taking up space and who are the voices that are being heard mm -hmm. so yeah eva thank you this is revolutionary damn oh, thank you <laughs> definitely is especially with like you all have mentioned how like central americans are highly criminalized when i studied abroad in guatemala I had to go to, the, to this like special little training about like Guatemala and like, tell them how dangerous it was for all of us to travel there wow. and explain to us like you know these things could happen to you like these things could like you know like just like everything dangerous about like Guatemala is, and I'm just like well those things happen in Mexico too like it happens in the U.S. I don't understand right. like you know like like I, I didn't I didn't I couldn't understand that concept you know but um. But we had to go through a special little training for me to be able to study abroad in Guatemala. Like, mm -hmm. they explained to us about all these um, certain, like, circumstances that we could run into. Like, you know, you mentioned with the mm -hmm. bus drivers and things like that. But, um, but it's just, I found it very ridiculous in the, in the end. Right. But when when we found, like, a lot of Europeans in Guatemala, like, you know, yeah. traveling across the country. Yeah. I, I think it's, I don't know if it's, like, a U.S. thing, but, like, like the U.S. was very, was very much to educate us on that. When at the day, like we saw a lot of other Europeans, a lot of other white people, like in Guatemala, right. like like you know, freely traveling around, they were just fine, you know. Yeah. Like at the end, they're not gonna really target you. Like I mean, like me, like it's just 
I don't know. I just found it like very ridiculous but Eva, how, they, like, how much they trained us. <laughs> Eva, how that. many times like has anyone asked you about your specific experiences as in a Latina indigenous woman? Like, no, like people don't <laughs> ask me that. Like, they they just solely think about like just Mexico, like like yeah. you know, I think they overgeneralize and there's it so many that nuances point. Within, yeah. yeah, and from like I've completely embraced that that at this point, and I and I love being just having that culture, and yeah. and I and I hate the fact when I was younger that like I tried to run away from that from that area and feel like I'm not indigenous, like you know, like I'm not in and just the telenovelas too, like how like no, yeah. indigenous, no, how yeah. indigenous women are like or the the servientas or yeah. the servants. I hated that, and I'm like that's not fair. So much more than that, and. I'm like, you know what? Like, I'm gonna go to law school. I'm gonna be a freaking attorney. Like, I'm so much more than just like a sirvienta from Telenovela. You know, like how we're portrayed in the media as well. And I do not appreciate that in any way. I'm just like shout out to people who clean houses, like my mom. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Like, like that. that, That's a very should be respected, you know. Like, you're just trying to make it income. We're more. It's like yeah, we're more than that. We're that, but we're also more. And if there's something wrong with cleaning houses, but that we're just so much more diverse than than that and just that yeah. exactly that, that's that's what i believe in just like thank you so much of it for yeah. having me on this podcast i really appreciated um how much we spoke about indigenous yeah. communities and just for me just being indigenous and having that those roots and how i definitely am going to use that as an advantage like in law school and i'm not going to let anyone else represent me and like you know and definitely advocate for indigenous communities yeah i love (laughs) y'all thank you can i also put on the record that i fucking love you Oh, I love you. I too. love you, Yvette. <laughs> You're the best. <laughs> okay, so we're saying bye now. Told that I got you.